Terrace, Welcome to Dog Feelings. It's a podcast about fictional father figures. And this week we are talking about a character portrayed by Ted Danson on the uh, short-lived, well, I guess it ran for about three seasons, so I don't know if I can really call it short-lived, but um, the Jonathan Ames uh, show, Bored to Death. And um, this is, uh, I think, nominally a show about noir and about um, a struggling writer named Jonathan Ames who decides to become a private detective on Craigslist. And um, it just kind of his misadventures, um, his relationships with his his friend, um, Ray, and his kind of older mentor figure, George Christopher. And honestly, <laughs> a lot of the show is about just like all of the ways that men fuck up in just their lives in their relationships with women. Um, and it's kind of gross in some ways, like the, there's not some not so great stuff in it. Um, but I first saw it a few years ago and it uh, really kind of struck a chord with me. And I guess not just because I think Jason Schwartzman is kind of a lovable, like dopey figure in it. Um, and basically always, but, um, one of the core relationships in the show is between, the Jason Schwartzman character, Jonathan Ames, um, who is kind of a stand-in for the creator of the show, um, who is also an author. And um, and his mentor figure, George Christopher. And so George is played by Ted Danson, and he's basically this... Uh, he starts out the, the series as a magazine editor, like working at basically like an Esquire called um, Edition in the universe of the show. And um, he's this kind of like almost very childish um, man in his 50s. Uh, the first scene we ever meet him in, he um, he runs into the bathroom at this function that he's holding um, when Jonathan arrives and asks him if he has any pot. So right off the bat, he's like kind of this, um, this kind of like childish teen figure, even though he is sort of like an older man and is sort of like placed in this role of of mentorship for Jonathan, but that really kind of continues on throughout like the first couple of seasons, at least where, um, he'll just get into some like absurd situation and, uh, is high and making terrible decisions. Uh, so there's one situation where he, um, he has a cold sore on his lip and is supposed to go to deliver some kind of talk. And he has Jonathan over and asks him to hit him in the face. So it looks like he got into a fight or like he got mugged rather than having a cold sore, does not work, um, and then gets mad at Jonathan for for punching him. Uh, and so that's kind of like the, his whole thing. Um, it's sort of remarked upon by other characters in the show that um, that he always wants, if someone else has something, he wants it. Um, like he he often, like the he literally says like, oh, oh you have that? I want that. I want that. Like that's kind of one of his catchphrases. Um but he is kind of a very like endearing character, um, fairly thoughtful, at least compared to some of the other characters on the show. Um, and, and really it becomes clear, I think, by, um, by about the second season or so that, that Board to Death is a show about dads to me. Um, the, third, the entire third season is really about Jonathan realizing that um, he doesn't know his biological father because his, his, uh, the man, um, his father, like who raised him with, uh, with his mother was infertile. And so they had to use, um, they had to go to a sperm bank 
And so he's sort of consumed by this desire to know his actual father, which is kind of uh, interesting because like uh, throughout the series, he's kind of been portrayed as someone who has no lack of older male uh, figures in his life. Um, he has George Christopher. He has um, his actual dad who lives in, um, in Jersey. Um, and then uh, he has his friend Ray, who can sometimes be sort of a dad-like figure as well, although like all of the other male characters in the show is is also, you know, extremely childish, possibly more than any of the others. Um, and there's actually a scene at the beginning of uh, the third season where uh, Ray points that out and just says, like, you know, maybe you don't actually need to find your biological father. Um, you have, like, you have at least three. Like, how many father figures do you need in, in an 80-mile radius? Um, but this is, it is a show about dads, and the third season makes it explicit, but um, the kind of core relationship of the show to me is the Jonathan-George relationship. Um, other characters kind of come and go. Uh, Jonathan's relationships with women and, and George's as well are kind of fleeting and, like, tentative and, and always kind of unsuccessful, so they sort of come and, and go very quickly, but that relationship stays pretty constant throughout the entire series. Um and we also learn fairly early on that aside from this this kind of mentorship relationship that George has with Jonathan, he also does actually have a a daughter, a biological daughter. And um, uh, we sort of learn about that in a scene where he and Ray are getting high in a car. And um, he just sort of says like, oh, yeah, I have a daughter. We love each other, but we don't know, really know each other very well. And he kind of like sits up like after a bit and is like, oh, my God. I failed at the most important thing in life. <laughs> um, and um, that's in the, the first season. And that doesn't really come up again until season three. His daughter doesn't really get introduced um, until then as an actual character. But before that happens, there's kind of a lot of really touching moments between George and Jonathan. So um, I think th with the, the kind of most impactful one is... Um, in season two, George discovers that he has, or believes that he has, uh, prostate cancer. And um, so he's, he's waiting to in for surgery. And Jonathan's there to see him, and a nurse comes in. And, um, and Jonathan just says, like, um, he's being wheeled out, and he's like, oh, I, I love you. Um, and the nurse is like, oh, is that... Are you his? Are you his son? Um, and then George just kind of like thinks for a minute and is like, "Yeah, yeah, he is," and gets wheeled out. And it's this really touching moment. Um, and I mean, we've talked on this show before about those kinds of relationships between characters, um, where there's sort of a, a father figure who isn't a isn't a dad in the sense that it wasn't in this character's life when they were growing up, but is sort of taking them under their wing, um, is like looking out for them, is going on weird adventures with them. And that's sort of like the crux of, of this, that relationship for the show for me when, um, when they basically acknowledge that they have like this kind of father son relationship that is, is very close. Um, and that's the end of season two. George finds out he doesn't actually have prostate cancer. It was kind of an administrative mistake. Um, and then when we get into season three, um, we get to meet George's daughter, Emily. And basically his thing is that he's been out of her life for a very long time. Um, and in the interim, 
she has sort of gone all the, on all these kind of weird adventures of her own. Um, she's introduced with her fiance or her, her boyfriend, who is this man who is like as old as George, which immediately sets him off. And, um, he's, despite being kind of, um, you know, sleeping with women much younger than him, um, he's sort of upset that his daughter is involved with a man much older than her. Um, and sort of suspects that he is this kind of weird Freudian substitute because he was a failure as a father, um, and, um, and his daughter has, is sort of like just spilling all these things that she's, she's done and been into that he had no idea about because he was so disconnected from her life. Um, and he's sort of taken aback and she's, uh, she brings up that he was like always high and drunk when she was a kid. And so like, wasn't really around or wasn't like really clued into her life. Um, and he sort of realizes that he's still doing that. Um, in a lot of ways. And you get to sort of see this contrast between like George as dad to Jonathan and as dad to Emily. And in many ways, he is a very good father to Jonathan. Um, in some ways he, you know, he makes mistakes and he does uh, kind of foolish things, but he's not, he's, he's there. Right. And he's, he's good. And with Emily, he he wasn't there when she was growing up. And he actually asks at one point, like, why, can, why am I so good at being a father to you and so terrible at being a father to her? And the show never really answers that explicitly, but, well, George actually does say, um, you know, it's because he's not personally invested in Jonathan's failures that it doesn't reflect on him if he fails in life, um, which feels more like a joke answer than anything because it's pretty clear that he is, uh, he's fairly invested in, in what happens in his life. Um, and you know, there are reasons you could, you could, um, you could talk about like, well, maybe he didn't know how to deal with having a daughter or maybe having a daughter. And especially, you know, when she comes back with an older man that maybe throws some of his de decisions in a question, um, you know, he, um, has a much easier time with kind of an adult child who he didn't have to have to physically raise. Um, so there are all these, these kind of contrasts between the way that he handles Jonathan and Emily. By the end of the series, there's sort of some, um, sort of some resolution where he's sort of made, made peace with Emily and with the fact that she is marrying this man who by all, uh, by all evidence, they seem to have a very good relationship, even if it is a somewhat non-conventional one involving um, puppy play. But um, he basically uh, basically comes to terms with that, and and it ends with him throwing them a wedding at his his restaurant that he opens after he ends up leaving his magazine because they're bought out by a conservative Christian outlet who want him to publish a cover uh, that is like a a really awful like anti Obama kind of comparison to Mao. Um, so there's also some other weird stuff about fatherhood, um, in the third season where basically Jonathan is looking for his biological father and finds him. Um, and he turns out to be played by Stacey Keach, who is extremely good. Um, and he is kind of this, just, uh, this con man, um, like a grifter. And he basically set up the sperm bank operation and was the one who was donating all of the sperm. Um, and what that means is that 
Uh, Jonathan, so Jonathan was kind of having help tracking down his biological father um, from this woman named Rose, who also came from the sperm bank. And they've had sex at this point. And then he finds out that they're brother and sister. And um, he sort of looks at, you know, he sort of weighs things and, and decides to not tell her, which is pretty horrific. Um, and it's sort of painted as like, well, that's fine. And I mean, I don't really want to get into it, but, um, but just keeping that from someone seems like pretty immoral to me. Um, but there's sort of a, a there's a, a scene in the last episode and Jonathan only finds his biological father in like the last couple of episodes, but, um, basically he has run up a lot of debt with some groundskeepers and, um, Jonathan goes after them. And, uh, basically his dad says like, okay, look, I'll get your money. Just keep my, my son here as insurance. I'm going to come back. And they're like, okay, well, if you don't, we're going to kill him. And he's like, don't worry. I definitely will. And it's not really clear like whether or not you can actually trust him because he's known Jonathan for like two days. Um, he seems pretty not indifferent, just like he seems kind of proud of him for being a writer and a detective and all this stuff. But like also he's a grifter, right? Like we're not really sure whether he's going to he's going to come back or not. Um, and so Jonathan um, ends up uh, like the the groundskeepers who are holding him hostage tell him to call his father. And, um, and tell him to hurry up and he calls George and not, not his biological father. And so George comes, uh, with, with Jonathan's friend Ray and they, uh, kind of get him out of the whole situation. And then, you know, right as right after they all pull away in a car, a taxi pulls up and you see Jonathan's dad run in with this big, uh, like bag full of money that he's going to pay other groundskeepers with. And like, he came back. Right. But, um, but as far as Jonathan knows, he abandoned him. And so there is kind of that bittersweet moment, um, where, oh, he did come through, but, um, but we don't, or Jonathan doesn't, doesn't get to know that. So, yeah. So a lot of the show is, um, is about dads. Um, and you have all these different, these, these different kinds of dads. So you have like the, the, um, Jonathan's father who raised him, who is a character who only turns up a couple of times. Um, he bails him out one time. He seemed to be basically pretty supportive. Um, you have this, this biological father played by Stacey Keach, who shows up at the end and turns out to also be pretty decent. It's kind of an embarrassment of dads. Like they all have problems and none of them are perfect, but it's kind of like this character has an overflow of dads. He's, he's hoarding dads. Um, and you have George who is this kind of demented God dad friend. It's like in, at least in the first couple of seasons, Jonathan knowing him, it's like he always um, meets him at like a bar. Like they meet at a bar in Grand Central or like he meets at his, um, in his office building. And it's like, he's scaling Olympus to go have an audience with this, like just demented God who just has no sense of like what the world is like because he's so well off. Um, and is like an older white man and is just basically insulated from everything. And also is like high a lot of the time. Um, and so is just like a ludicrous person. Um, 
there's also they also um Jonathan George that relationship the the a lot of the second season is sort of about this shadow of that relationship um so there is a character um called Antrim who is played by um Oliver Platt and this character is uh he's someone who has like basically is evil George in the universe of the show um he married George's ex-wife um he works or works for or runs a competing magazine and um they just despise each other and Antrim has kind of this this protege or kind of his own weird son figure named Lewis Green who is uh played by John Hodgman and Green is first introduced as this critic who basically wrote a really scathing review of Jonathan's first book and just despises him. Um, and it's never really made clear why other than maybe he's kind of uh, jealous of him or he sees him as getting credit that he doesn't deserve. But um, eventually uh, Antrim and Green are sort of paired as this opposing father-son um, couple or like, or group um, and the second season actually culminates in this boxing match between um, between Antrim, Green, and this guy that they just get, um, and then uh, Jonathan, George, and Ray. And it's like a very physical, like, um, instantation of this rivalry between these father-son pairs. And so whereas Jonathan and George are portrayed as having a very good relationship so george is supportive and indulgent of his of jonathan's like weird behavior like deciding to become a private detective um, and bails him out when he needs to and all these things uh Antrim is just uh, kind of sadistic and later on when he opens a restaurant uh, to compete with george he hires green as a waiter uh, so that he can berate him um, he hires him on this work release program because uh, Lewis gets arrested for trying to sabotage Jonathan's appearance on um, on a talk show. And so he's sort of been demoted to this really subservient position. And Antrim really enjoys just um, just kind of pushing him around. He, he really is a bully. Um, and they're sort of the shadow of George and Jonathan of like they they portray like the kind of awful father-son relationship of the the sort of like belief on the part of the son that um that the father really does love them and approve of them in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary that um that the father has nothing but contempt and disapproval and um and all of these negative emotions for that person. Um, and it's a really toxic dynamic because it um, is really hard for either one of them to pull away because they are kind of locked in this thing where, um, where one is so, uh, you know, so badly wants that approval and so badly believes that it is there. Um, and the other one is just constantly withholding. And, um, it, it is very much opposite to the, the George Jonathan relationship, um, which is so full of praise and so full of, um, of positive emotions and just, um, and like mutual respect and support. Um, and so you have kind of all these contrasts, these different dads, like compared to one another. 
um, in by the show. And again, like aside from Antrim, I feel like most of them are actually like fairly portrayed as fairly complex characters um, who aren't uniformly bad or good. Um, Antrim even has some redeeming qualities, but certainly his relationship with Green is one of uh, of just real contempt. And um, actually, when he opens this restaurant, basically the situation is that George opens a restaurant where he claims that all of the produce and meat comes from 100 miles within New York. And Antrim opens a restaurant where he claims everything comes 50 miles from New York. And, um, and basically, it turns out that Green has been just going to a low-end supermarket and just buying food there and claiming that it's organic and um and all this, these kind of prestige uh, terms associated with food. And Andrew claims to have had no idea that this was going on. Um, and Green says that he just did it to uh, to help him and to sort of um, to get his approval. And it is really just a demonstration of their really toxic, awful relationship. Um, and kind of in the midst of this uh Jonathan and George have sort of had some some rockiness as well, where um, where basically uh, George has been trying to break up his daughter's marriage or impending marriage, her relationship by um, having Jonathan take her out and show her like a youthful good time, which ends up getting her punched in the face by a furry, um, which <laughs> um, is sort of like an accidental thing, it turns out, and she just sort of gets smacked in the face and gets her nose broken. Um, and uh, so uh, Emily finds out that this was all kind of a, a thing, a plan by George to get her to 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 want to leave her, uh, her boyfriend, Bernard, and gets really upset at him and isn't speaking to him. And so George, in kind of his childish way, takes this out on Jonathan by saying like, okay, well, if she's taking a break from me, then I'm taking a break from you. Um and so it does kind of demonstrate that he is still basically a a child emotionally in a lot of ways, which is, um, I think, an aspect of fatherhood that we don't talk about often. Um, I feel like there is this stereotype that, or there is this belief, this kind of analysis of masculinity, of like specifically white male masculinity in power that says that it is cold and rational and like, if one well, that maybe not rational, but but cold and sort of um, not emotional, and that this analysis goes along with this belief that like, or this this way of talking about feminism that says that like, well, under you know if if we um, if we have more equitable gender relations or um, if we change things, then this will benefit men too because under the patriarchy, men aren't allowed to express their feelings. Um, and they don't have access to the side of themselves. And that's so horrible. And without meaning to diminish that kind of experience for some men, I feel like it's a pretty big mischaracterization because um, I feel like what's more often true is this, uh, this kind of emotional childishness um, that fathers and, and, and grown men are associated with where they throw tantrums. And they get upset and they have these big feelings. And because they've never had, they've never actually had to constrain them. They've never had to constrain their anger um, or their 
sadness or their loneliness or whatever. And so they lash out and they do, they don't know how to deal with them in contrast to people who have spent their whole lives learning how to um, police their expression of their emotions. So, you know, George, I think is a good example of that. Of just, he just reacts to things. He just has these big feelings and then just treats them as a fact and doesn't know how to contemplate things or, or sit back and, and, and consider how his, how, you know, having a feeling doesn't necessarily mean that he should do anything in particular. Um, and I guess that this kind of a tangent, but that is something that I see a lot in, in conversation and kind of casual conversation, or maybe kind of like pop feminist discussion of masculinity. And I think it is a pretty big mischaracterization and one that, um, that misses the mark and, and kind of models or yeah, models things. Um, but, but anyway, <laughs> Um, yeah, George is kind of an emotional child, but he is also like, you get the sense that he is someone who you would really like to, to hang out with. Like you want to go up to Olympus and have an audience with him. And like one of the really cool or powerful things about the show for me is like Jonathan and George like share similar kinds of interests or like languages or references, right? So they can talk about, uh, about writing and they can talk about, um, about, you know, film or, or, or whatever. Um, and I feel like if you don't have that kind of relationship with a parent, then the fact that some people do can be very surprising. Um, I remember when I first realized that I had friends whose parents had gone to college and some who had gone to grad school and who discussed, um, uh, you know, like Bourdieu in, in their house. And that was like fucking wild to me. Um, you know, like I was a first generation college student and, um, you know, I get along well with my parents, but to imagine that some people had that level of facility of conversation with them is, is just unreal. And I don't say that to put down or to, to say that, um, that, you know, that those kinds of like, um, really academic interests are more valid than non-academic ones. But I think anytime there isn't an alignment, um, it's hard to have more than a casual basis for a conversation because once you exhaust like what's going on or, or what is X up to, it's hard to talk about things if you don't share kind of a common language for talking about them, Right. And so that I think is part of why this show is so compelling to me. And I guess that that's me putting a lot of my cards on the table, but, um, this idea of like a, a parental figure who, um, can appreciate your work and encourage it from a basis of like, from a concrete basis, not just kind of an abstract one of like, well, this seems to be going well, or people seem to like this. So I guess that's good. Um, but of really being able to be like, oh, wow, this, that was a great piece of writing you did. Or like, um, oh, it's so great that you, you did this or whatever, um, is really kind of attractive to me. <laughs> um, it's really like, um, having that shared language, I think, and the shared context is, is super cool. Um, and I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, say that Bored to Death is a show you have to watch, but if that is kind of a theme that you're interested in, you might be, um, you might be compelled by it in the same way that I am. And so I think George is kind of that fantasy, right? Of like the, the demented God, um, 
up on the, the mountain that um, helps you out and that, that supports you and gives you work and um, and who buys you drinks and like takes you on trips and stuff. And um, and there's also no sexual element to it, uh, which is kind of almost like conspicuous, I guess, um, because I think often that is like the male, male mentee mentor relationship, especially among writers can be tinged with sexual, um, undertones. And there is like zero of that in the show, which is like almost again, like kind of conspicuous for its absence. But, um, but maybe I'll leave that for another time to talk about. Um, so that, I think that just about does it for this week of dad feelings. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, if you like the episode, if you like the show, please tell your friends. Um, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, as always, feel free to contact us at dadfeelings or at staymeanco on Twitter. And until next time, um, I will see you later. Bye, kiddos. Is it Dad Feelings is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by Nick Bravo for Stay Mean. Stay Mean is listener supported. If you appreciate the shows we make and want access to bonus episodes and other perks, support us at dadfeelings.com support. Our theme music is Swell Content by Speedy Ortiz off their album, Foil Deer. Thanks to Car Park Records and Sadie Dupuy. Thanks for listening. Be good, kiddos.